Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I bring you a message today from the people of Ireland. The eyes desire peace in England as with the rest of the world. It is a question of a republic. And we want the creation of a new Ireland. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. I wish to talk to you this evening about... Welcome to the History of Ireland. We are back. Year three of making this plucky little podcast and... I hope you're all enjoying it as much as I am. I really didn't think it would take this long to get through the Irish War of Independence, but uh, (laughs) here we are. Now, I'm eager to get stuck in, so let's get straight back into things. When we last met, we had reached early November of 1921, where the treaty debates had entered a rather strange moment in time. It seemed almost like the Southern Irish and the British were in agreement, both on the same side, working to bring Ulster into line. But James Craig, the Prime Minister of the new Northern Irish Parliament, was nothing if not stubborn and was not budging an inch. He opposed any kind of unified Ireland. This meant that Lloyd George had to get a little aggressive. His plan of attack was to go after the Ulsterman's wallet. For a very long time, Ulster, and now Northern Ireland, had enjoyed unique tax exemptions. And Lloyd George's threat was pretty simple. If you don't want to join an all-Irish parliament, sure, you can stay part of Great Britain, but you're going to pay normal taxes just like Liverpool, Glasgow and everybody else. On November 10th, he gathered his cabinet to show them a letter he planned to send to Craig. The letter did not go down well, and Austin Chamberlain demanded Lloyd George cool his rhetoric. As Chamberlain put it, we are now not writing to Celts, but to Anglo-Saxons. Lloyd George shot back, saying, Ulster, and not Sinn Féin, was the threat to the integrity of the empire. In this situation, you could not begin to use force against the South. Chamberlain conceded the point and stated he would support exerting the greatest moral pressure on Ulster if I think the settlement is satisfactory and vital to the empire. Craig has to govern with a Sinn Féin population. The alternatives are peace or murder. The letter was sent off to Craig, packed full of language that would fit in right at home in our post-Brexit world. It said... A jagged line of frontier would disrupt the natural channels of trade and alienate large elements of the Irish population. (sighs) We never learn. But Craig wouldn't 
budge, declaring the quote, an all-Ireland parliament was precisely what Ulster had been resisting for many years by all the means at her disposal. Whether it was a negotiation ploy or a genuine attempt by Lloyd George to push for an all-Ireland parliament, we'll, we'll never know. But either way, Craig's refusal to budge in any way, shape or form pretty much killed any chance of a 32-county Ireland, right there and then. The Ulsterman simply had too much sway in Lloyd George's coalition. This left everyone in a tricky situation. David Jones, Lloyd George's secretary, was sent to meet Griffith on November 12th and basically made it clear that the Ulstermen were sticking to their guns. Now, this actually pleased Griffith. Remember, if the talks were going to fall apart, he wanted it to happen because of Ulster. And increasingly, this was looking more and more likely. But Lloyd George still had a few tricks up his sleeve. Later that day, Lloyd George invited Griffith to yet another private meeting to discuss next steps. Like the previous meeting between Lloyd George and Griffith, this one would be important. In fact, Frank Pakenham, who wrote the definitive account of the treaty debates in 1935, argued that without this meeting on Saturday 12th, there might have been no treaty. And due in no small part to Pakenham's writing, Griffith's action over this weekend has gone on to have had quite a negative impact on Griffith's legacy, though some historians take issue with Pakenham's telling of events. At first glance, the meeting itself seems fairly inconsequential. Griffith and Lloyd George simply discussed the Boundary Commission, which is to be laid out in another letter to James Craig. Remember, Griffith had discussed all of this already with David Jones the week before. In a letter to Dev later on in the week, Griffith explained what happened. Lloyd George and his colleagues are sending a further reply to the Ulsterman, offering to create an all-Ireland parliament. Ulster to have the right to vote itself out within 12 months. But if it does, a boundary commission to be set up to delimit the area. Delimit. Remember the word, delimit. I told him it was his proposal, not ours, Griffith continues. He agreed, but he said that when they were fighting next Thursday with the diehards and Ulster in front, they were lost if we cut the ground away behind them by repudiating the proposal. I said we would not do that, if it meant that he thought he could come out in public decrying it. It was his own proposal. If the Ulsterman accepted it, we would have to discuss it with him in the privacy of the conference. What's important in all of that is the word delimit. This means to determine the limits of a territory. So as Griffith saw it, they would be determining the limits of the six counties of Northern Ireland. As he understood it, Northern Ireland would stand only to lose territory. Griffith continued in his letter to Dev, explaining how the meeting ended. I could not guarantee its acceptance, as of course my colleagues knew nothing of it. But I would guarantee 
that while he was fighting the Ulster crowd, we would not help them by repudiating him. This satisfied him. They are sending this letter on Monday. Now, that was all good enough for Lloyd George, who then proceeded to pull what could be described as a bit of a fast one. You see, Chamberlain and the Conservatives were wary of a boundary commission for the very reason that Griffith felt it was okay in principle. They were worried that Northern Ireland would lose too much territory and become unviable. Which, as we've discussed, is exactly what Griffith wanted to happen. This meant that on Sunday the 13th, Lloyd George had some manoeuvring to do. He had instructed one of his aides to write a memo so as to placate Chamberlain. It stated that a boundary commission would, quote, revise and adjust the line by both inclusion and exclusion. Warning, warning, Will Robinson. The word revise is very different from delimit. It's a whole different kettle of fish than what Griffith thought he was discussing the night before. Revise, well, revised everything. It meant that Northern Ireland could stand to gain territory. And that would totally scupper Griffith's idea of eventually shrinking a Northern Irish state to the point where it was no longer viable. But because of this, the change was enough to win over Chamberlain and the Conservatives to the idea of a boundary commission. Now this is super important and will most definitely be on the test. On Saturday 12th, Lloyd George and Griffith discussed a letter to be sent to Craig. As Griffith described to Dev, the letter discussed how a boundary commission would delimit the Northern Irish Territory. On Sunday 13th, a memo was circulated stating that a boundary commission would revise the Northern Irish Territory. On the Sunday, Jones came to Griffith with the memo, not the letter, asking him to double-check it. Griffith, not believing anything had overly changed, signed off on it, but only thinking that it would pertain to the letter being sent to Craig. Usually, Erskine Childers recorded every single interaction with the British, in as much detail as possible. Any meeting, private or otherwise, was noted by Childers and any document was intensely scrutinised. This hypervigilance and kind of a lack of trust put Griffith on edge. Remember, the two men hated each other. But importantly, most of the Irish, including Childers, had gone back to Ireland that weekend for a well-earned break. They believed nothing all that important would happen while Lloyd George was bogged down in an argument with the Ulsterman. And so this small meeting of Jones and Griffith to discuss the memo kind of fell by the wayside. Now, you might ask why the hell I'm stressing about memos and letters, but all of this will become hugely important. I promise. The long and short of it was Lloyd George had successfully navigated the minefield getting both the Irish and the Conservatives on board with a boundary commission. The both groups 
had different ideas of what this would involve. Not everyone on the Irish side was so keen on it. In the end, Lloyd George actually removed the last two pages of the letter in which the commission was laid out before he sent it on to Craig. Griffith knew about this, believing that Lloyd George was holding off on the full details of the Boundary Commission as a negotiating ploy to bring Ulster on board. There are a few different ways to look at the weekend of the 12th and 13th of November. In Pakenham's telling, Griffith secretly went behind the other plenipotentiary's back to agree to the Boundary Commission and the language of a revised border. Freeman, author of the treaty, the amazing book I'm stealing a lot of this content from, argues that Griffith was outmaneuvered by the genius of Lloyd George. By not thoroughly checking the language in the memo, and by keeping things relatively vague, Griffith left the door open for Lloyd George to take advantage of the minute changes in language. When you get to this level of international diplomacy, every single word counts. But then the author of The Midnight in London, the Anglo-Irish Treaty Crisis, and a biographer of Griffiths, Colm Kenny, disagrees with both and dedicates a whole chapter to debunking Pakenham. Don't you just love it when historians fight? Kenny argues that Griffith has been poorly represented by history. He believes that Griffith would never have assented to anything so monumental as a boundary commission. And if you look at Griffith's writings, it seems clear that he at least never believed he had assented. He simply agreed to not go against the commission while Lloyd George was winning over Ulster. Secondly, Kenny argues that the idea of Griffith going behind anyone's back is nonsense. This is because the rest of the plenipotentiaries and the Irish cabinet back home, including de Valera, all had access to the memo. But rather than focusing on the language of the Boundary Commission, they argued over the oath. In this telling, the whole Irish delegation was duped by the language change. Like with anything historical, it's almost impossible for us to know the truth. All we can do is take all the information and decide for ourselves. But okay, I'll move on from both the letter and the memo for now. But I'm telling you, it is important. In fact, when we get to the very last minutes of the treaty debates, you may want to come back and re-listen to this whole section. To sum all of that up, as Freeman puts it, by such subtle manoeuvres, Lloyd George transformed an insuperable obstacle into a stepping stone from which he could leapfrog his way to a settlement. Freeman also points out that Francis Stevenson, Lloyd George's personal secretary and lover, said she'd never seen Lloyd George so excited about anything before. One of the reasons he was so pleased with this win was that he desperately needed it. The Conservative Party was hosting its annual conference and there were rumours that Boner Law was ready to steal control of the party back from Austin Chamberlain. 
In fact, Chamberlain believed that he was, quote, fighting for my political life. But this actually wasn't really the case. Boner Law, and Ulsterman after all, was just deeply concerned with Lloyd George screwing over Ulster. He begged Lloyd George to, quote, not confine your bullying to Ulster. Try it on the Sinn Feiners too. Say to them, Ulster, in spite of all the pressures I have put on, is immovable. And not only so, but the party which I rely on will be hopelessly broken up. However much I wish it, it can't be done. I, this is Bonin Law pretending to be Lloyd George, remember? I, therefore, make this proposal to you. For your own part of Ireland, frame your own constitution. And if it's within the empire, we will accept almost anything you propose. He finished saying, If they say no, say very well. Go to the devil in your own way. Govern your own part of Ireland as you please, and we will spend no more British blood in Ireland. We will fight you by an economic blockade. We will allow no intercourse of any kind between Ireland and the United Kingdom. That'd be no fun, would it? So here, Bonner Law is saying he wouldn't go back to war, which is a lot less hawkish than you'd expect from one of the most conservative players in this whole game. This had major implications for the Tory convention, which was carried out throughout the week of the 14th. Without Boner Law, the Tory rebels faced defeat after defeat and failed to gain any real traction. Part of this was how well Chamberlain spoke in defence of the Irish situation and, well, in defence of his career. By all accounts, Chamberlain went in hard and gave what he believed to be one of the best speeches of his political career. As Freeman puts it, the usually grey, uninspiring leader transfixed the party with his impassioned defence of Irish negotiations. So the conference ended with Boner Law happily on the sidelines and Chamberlain still in control of the Conservatives. And they were all on board to continue solving the Irish problem. With the caveat, as explained in Chamberlain's speech, that they give Ulster a free choice. This was another win for Lloyd George, who, after hearing that Chamberlain maintained control of the party, quote, marched up and down the cabinet room, pretending to play See the Conquering Hero Come on a cornet. Just reminds me of Josh Lyman from the West Wing, and it's hard to hate a man who chooses a cornet as his imaginary instrument of choice. So let's quickly recap. Lloyd George had Conservative leader Chamberlain on board with the Boundary Commission. Chamberlain had kept control of the Conservatives, so they were, for all intents and purposes, on board as well. Griffith would not dispute the Boundary Commission, and Craig, with his Ulsterman, were happy as they'd been promised a free choice. And they'd made it very clear already that their free choice was not to come in an all-Irish parliament. This meant that things could finally start locking into place. On Wednesday the 16th, in the middle of the Conservative conference, 
British finally sent through their first draft treaty to the Irish. Here's what it laid out. Ireland would become a dominion, similar to Canada, and stay within the empire. Its army would be limited to 40,000 men, and the British would control coastal defence until the two countries could agree on an alternative. There would be no trade sanctions. And then the clincher, and the only really big change since July 20th, was the Northern Irish government would have a year to decide whether or not it wanted to stay in the Irish state. If it didn't, it would face new taxes and a boundary commission would redraw the borders. The exact language used stated that the boundary commission would determine the boundaries between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland. This was pretty much exactly as Griffith had discussed it with Lloyd George and what he had laid out to Dev. But it's pretty clear from that language that Northern Ireland could both gain and lose territory from such a boundary commission. The draft also stipulated that an oath of allegiance would be sworn to the king. The British saw this as a must so as to protect the strength of the empire. This bit specifically sent Childers, Barton and Gavin Duffy into a rage when they read this draft. They were fiercely against dominion status, as well as the oath of allegiance it would entail. Dev agreed, saying the Irish needed to stick to their original position. Collins, we know, had come on board with the idea. Over the previous few days, he had done a deep dive into, as he explained, how dominion status actually worked. He read widely on the subject, focusing on the South African Prime Minister Smuts's writing on, quote, a decentralised commonwealth of nations. Collins shrewdly saw that dominion status was constantly evolving and genuinely believed that it would be an effective stepping stone for Ireland to gain more and more freedoms. But none of this convinced Barton, Childers or Duffy. And for the next few days, there were furious rows between the plenipotentiaries. This all came to a head on Monday the 22nd, the day before the Irish were due to reply to the British draft. They got together at 11.30am. Despite all my rabbiting on about the Boundary Commission, it was barely mentioned. And instead, sovereignty and the oath were the biggest issues. Childers had always had a bee in his bonnet around defence and argued furiously against the British controlling Irish waters. The meeting quickly devolved into a full-on argument with Griffith declaring that Childers' novel, the famous Riddle in the Sands, had caused World War I. How's that for an insult? They broke up and got together later that evening at around 11pm and their lawyer began drafting a response from, quote, a tangled mass of papers. Once finished, the group split up with Collins, Griffith and Duggan in one room and Barton, Childers and Duffy in another. Childers recorded in his diary that they got to bed at 3am. But despite this, they were ready with a counterproposal at 12.30pm on the 22nd of November. And it pretty much stuck to Dev's original plan. 
and tried once again to push the idea of external association. Yep, they were back on to external association. Unsurprisingly, this did not go down well. Freeman counts this as the fourth time external association had been brought up by the British. Lord George went into full-on bad cop bluster, with Jones writing in his diary how, after reading the counter-proposal, Lloyd George declared, This is no use. They are back on their independent state again. If they are not coming into the empire, then we will make them. Francis Stevenson, who had a more private view of Lloyd George, described a slightly different take. She said, Things seem very shaky. Lloyd George is worried and irritable. There seems to be so many snags and he is almost worn out with these protracted negotiations. But my favourite view into his state of mind comes in a letter I think that was written to his wife. As he described it, the Irish negotiations have taken a turn for the worst. Seriously. This time it's the Sinn Féiners. Last week it was the Ulsterites. They are both the sons of Belial who I think is the devil? I don't know, but I love it. The following week saw arguments on all sides, with disagreements between the British and the Irish, as well as rancorous fights within the Irish delegation itself. But despite all the back and forth and all the discussion and argument, there really wasn't a lot of movement until the 28th of November. It was a Monday. In Griffith and Duggan, because Collins was back in Dublin, met with Lloyd George, as well as Birkenhead and a Sir Robert Horne, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. As usual, Griffith's letters to Dev are our best source on what occurred in the meeting. And the next day he wrote, saying, They agreed to send us the final proposals for Northern Ireland on Thursday evening, but to formally hand them to us next Tuesday. It is essential a cabinet meeting should be held I shall return to Dublin on Friday morning and hope to see you on that evening. Please have a cabinet meeting arranged for Saturday morning when we shall all be there. I intend to return to London on that evening. This was the end game. As Collins wrote to Kitty Kiernan, his fiancée, they are getting into the heart of things now and I don't suppose we will hear much longer. James Craig agreed, writing, By Tuesday next, either the negotiations will have broken down or the Prime Minister will send me new proposals for consideration by the Cabinet. One more week only is given to say yes or no. That means that Sinn Féin, fully alive as it is now to our unflinching determination not to go into an all-Ireland Parliament, has got to say she will still work for settlement or the negotiations are broken down. Craig was right. Ulster was not capitulating. The ball was in Ireland's court. It was time to decide whether or not to break off negotiations and go back to war. So this is it. The plenipotentiaries returned to Dublin for what would turn out to be the very last Dáil Cabinet meeting before a treaty was signed. Next episode, 
will watch how that cabinet meeting unfurled and finally see how these treaty negotiations came to an end. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. You can also support the show, buy merch, and get in touch all through our website, thehistoryofireland.com. Or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. It's always great hearing from you guys. And if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. The History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dolan. Additional research and fact-checking by Robert Babington, music by Liam Doyle, and additional help from assistant producer Aoife Murphy. This podcast was recorded in the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.